I really firmly believe that a better world is possible. I don't agree that we should that that it's all that it's not possible, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it will be easy or that it's like coming tomorrow. But I think that like my other thing is that, okay, worst case scenario, I'm wrong. It never gets better. Then all we have is each other. And the things that I would do to orient myself towards a better world are the things that I do would do to orient myself towards caring for the people who are around me. And welcome to Can't Let It Go, the show about the things stuck in our head. I am Matt. I use he, him pronouns. And yes, I have been sick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm AC. I use they, them pronouns. I haven't been sick, but it's good to hear your voice, friend. (laughs) Uh, We were talking before. It's been, we think, five or six weeks since we've recorded. Yeah. And while not a lot has happened in my life, I've mostly sat on the chair in the bedroom for those weeks. I have done a lot of things and we were trying to figure out nuggets and we realized maybe we have like 17. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also I feel like so many pop culture moments have happened in the last few weeks. The everybody has been really hitting their stride with like great meme structures and all of that kind of stuff. The 2020 three wrap ups, the the all of the ins and the outs like we there are many, many things that have come and gone since the last time we talked for the show. Yeah. So anything top of mind that you do want to share with me, Matt? The one that is like literally top of mind because it happened today really for me <laughs> was it's more comics. I'm going to talk about comics again. Um, there's like a little mini comics podcast in the middle of this podcast every week. I feel like. Are, like, you know the um, Marvel Ultimate Universe? Yeah. Yeah. So And it, like, went on for a number of years, started in the 2000s, and it basically got killed off in 2015 with Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars. Well, they're bringing it back, or at least something Ooh. else called the Ultimate Universe. And I read today, sorry, job, um, <laughs> Ultimate Invasion, um, which is four, four books, Ultimate Universe number one, which is a little one shot, and Ultimate Spider-Man number one. Uh, which was the first of an ongoing new Ultimate Spider-Man. And it all rips. It's okay. all fucking great. <laughs> Good and to like, know. like I've read a lot of comics while I've been sitting at home and, you know, trying to not move my body. Yeah. And these are some of the best that I have read in, in, since the last time that we talked. Ooh, well, that's exciting. This means I can write them down on my very – I have a new – um section in my like planner journal for this year um I'm, i use the hobonichi system and they have like a page of like a hundred of, of like my 100 write down a hundred mm. of something books you read things you did whatever and i chose to uh have it be a hundred things people recommended to me so <laughs> putting that one down <laughs> yeah especially ultimate spider-man and like if you don't want to read all the stuff I just said and you just want to like pick up a book, like I think Ultimate Spider-Man, at least from the number one that's out so far, is like perfectly fine to start with. Man, it's just doing some stuff. Like you think it's going to be a, a Spider-Man origin story that you've seen before, but like like Peter's like 35 this, <laughs> and he's not become Spider-Man yet. And like that has a ton of implications. Yeah. And it, it fucking, it rules. That's awesome. Yeah. Love to hear that. What about you? 
Oh my God. Okay. So I think the thing that I'm thinking about right now is Traders 2. It's happening. Oh We're God. getting another season of the Traders. Um, I, we have a preview of some of the celebs and people who are going to be on it. And I am just like so stoked about Traders 2. Have we talked about on Pavarty the show that is Parvati gay. is gay? <laughs> oh my God. is dating a woman. Uh, Survivor Queens had their moment of drama returned to them. Um, and like, there's just like so much stuff. I mean, I think this is a great moment to say if you're a regular listener of the show and you use Discord, like join us in the Worst Garbage yes. Discord. We did get to talk about all of those things in the Discord as they happened. Um, but we uh, no have not talked them, <laughs> talked about them here on the show yet. <laughs> I just I love that Sandra and Parvati are going to be on this season <laughs> together. Yeah. And then not only that. Poverty's queer. Poverty's going to be on the on the second season of The Traders. To be clear, right, right, sorry, right, we right, didn't right, say right. that part. We yes. didn't say that part. Yeah, they're both going to be on The Traders together. <laughs> but also, like, and apparently um, people in the Discord were saying, like, Poverty, I guess, said some things on Survivor Micronesia that, mm. like, made it seem like she was kind of being like, actually, this is the situation here, right? Mm. And so people had long thought that she was queer for a long time, but she finally was like, Literally, on, on Instagram, we're here, we're queer. Yeah. Is what she said. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was a whole moment there. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the sake of this episode, um, especially because this is one that is something that I can't stop thinking about, like, so much so that it's something that I've mentioned on the show before. <laughs> it's something that lives very deep in my brain. Uh, I'm ready to jump into the into the meat of meat of the show. What about you? I'm let's go for it. We've right. been talking about this book for forever. Amazing. Okay. So today we are going to be discussing the book Infomocracy by Malka Older. This book was released in 2016, and I believe that I read it for the first time in 2017. Um, and uh, immediately became obsessed with it. I actually don't reread books very often. Um, it's pretty rare for me to like a book enough to reread it. Um, this is one that I have read, I think, four or five times at this point. Um, it's a fast read. It is the first in a series. So it's called the Sentinel Cycle series. And then a fun fact about the book is that actually it was edited um, by a friend of mine from high school, Carl Engel Laird, um, who is an editor for Tor Books or was at some point. I'm not sure what Carl's up to now, but they're cool. And they this is that's why I heard about this book was from, oh, cool. I didn't know from them sharing um, that they were that they were working on it. So. I I have a little bit of a different approach. In the past, um, when we've done, you know, episodes about pieces of media and content, we're often trying to kind of convince you, our listener, or convince each other to watch mm -hmm. or read um, or listen to something. Um, I... I do want to convince you of those things, but I'm not going to do it by breaking down the story or like walking you through the specific like plot points. I, I we're going to read the synopsis that the, the back of the book synopsis um, and then I'll give you some like extra little details. But this novel is like really cool to me because first and foremost, it imagines uh, like a near distant future that feels extremely possible to me mm. and it is one of those speculative fiction books that is 
maybe science fiction, maybe political fiction, thriller, whatever it is, the way that Malka Older's writing considers the possibilities, like draws from the current system, like potential futures is just very, very compelling to me. So mm. I am really excited to talk about some of these con concepts with you. Um, and as we talk, it will become immediately evident to you why I am obsessed with this book. <laughs> so um, with that, Matt, do you want to read the synopsis for us? Sure. So I have to tell I have to tell the listeners that um, I texted you. I never remember the name of this book to the <laughs> point that like every time I think about it, the word that comes into my head is iconoclast. It is not. It's not That's called not that. It. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this is infomocracy. Infomocracy. It's been 20 years and two election cycles since information, a powerful search engine monopoly, pioneered the switch from warring nation states to global micro-democracy. The corporate coalition party Heritage has won the last two elections. With another election on the horizon, the supermajority is in tight contention and everything's on the line. With power comes corruption. For Ken, this is his chance to do right by the idealistic policy first party and get a steady job in the big leagues. For Domain, the election represents another staging ground in his ongoing struggle against the Pax Democratica. For Mishima, a dangerous information operative, the whole situation is a puzzle. How do you keep the wheels running on the biggest political experiment of all time when so many have so much to gain? So that's our back of the book jacket, inside of the book jacket synopsis of the novel. Um, this is a book that follows several key players. It is fundamentally a political thriller, right? It's a spy novel, but it is a spy novel, like I said, set in a distant future. I think the back of the book or some other folks refer to it as like a cyberpunk political thriller, which I think is very funny. The the setting for this hinges on two main concepts that were that I want to talk about with you. One is micro democracy. And the other is information, which is mentioned in, you know, the synopsis here. And that's a uh, proper noun information, like proper noun, the Internet. Right. Mm. And so information is an extra governmental entity. And I, I'll talk a little bit about how it comes to be, although that's not really discussed in the book. So the characters that you follow are operatives in the election cycle in some way or another. And each of the characters kind of has their own take on the political system. So one of the reasons why it's fun to read this book is it it, it presents an alternative political system and an alternative political world order, but it doesn't do so uncritically. Like it, its characters and the novel itself are interested in interrogating the question of like, if we were to if we were to take on micro democracy as our form of government, would it work for us? What would be the pitfalls? What would be the dangers? What would be the challenges. So let's start with what is microdemocracy. So microdemocracy is the is this 
world is a world government, okay, where every 100,000 people comprise a sentinel is what they're called. So a territory mm. called a sentinel. Sentinel is just a unit of 100,000 people. Each sentinel votes to elect their political party mm. um, who represents the sentinel. And then each of these, there, there's like, there are super majorities, right? So the super majority is the government in the world that gets the most number of sentinels that vote for it. So in, in the novel, the, the super majority is heritage, uh, is the name of the political party. And, and it's also not really, it's both a political party, but like also it's a government, right? right. So the, the, the idea here is that you, you could live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I could live in Washington, D.C., and we could both be part of the same sentinel government, but hmm. my neighbor five streets over could be a member of a different sentinel government and could have a different sentinel government five streets over because – and so – you know, th it, it reorients the idea of a state to make it very, very small, but it mm -hmm. doesn't do away with the potential for, let's say, an entire country to still be governed by a single government. Right. Um, but countries per se don't really exist. Right. There is like this. It was an unprecedented step to form a new international world order. Right. Um, and they have been through two global election cycles. And these the, micro democracy in the novel is essentially only fun possible because of information, mm. which is, as the word might imply to you, a massive network of like basically the Internet, but like at eyeball level. So it's like mm. projections onto people's eyes where they're constantly receiving information that includes ads like that includes um, you know, political information, news, video games, right? Like, like games, stories, shows, a million, million things constantly running at eye level. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. If you'll read for me this second part here, the second quote here, the whole starting with the whole point of microdemocracy. The whole point of microdemocracy was to allow people to choose their government wherever they were. But plenty of people didn't agree with their 99,999 geographically closest friends. Some areas, Ireland being one classic example, vast zones of what used to be the United States, another, had been polarized so deeply and so long that your choices if you stayed were pretty much A or B. So the idea here, right, is like microdemocracy is supposed to expand your choices, right? You're, you can choose any government in the world that you want right. to be a member of and it requires like a certain level of like breaking down of the functions and the concepts like that we think about when we think about like what makes up an identity or like a government and how our government's organized. So like let's say there's a, you know, a specific government that like today, right, like I can think of maybe they're like LGBTQ safety oriented, right? And it's like equality now is whatever, like the, right. the nation, the government name, right? If you were able to get 100,000 people in the same physical, like geographic location who all wanted to be governed by that government, right, that would become the government of that area. So these governments are still tied to like a physical plane, but they are also 
totally separate from it, which I think is so interesting because that is both true for how the world actually is and then like not true for how imperial states want us to see our relationships to like nation states. I don't know if you have any. (laughs) I don't immediately. So I'm going to be totally honest. The thought that I had when I read that synopsis to you was like, this is something that I can tell that I would love if I put all of myself into it. And I also (laughs) read this. And if I was reading this and didn't already trust the person delivering to it to me, my eyes would completely glaze over. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Okay. So essentially it's like, I actually really love this, this quote about New York city um, from the book that really, kind of breaks it down for you in a a less wonky, like more approachable way, right? Like New York City, on the other hand, has fully embraced micro-democracy. In one way, it's the perfect place for it. A city already divided into boroughs and then neighborhoods of tightly knotted communities. Each is different from the next as the two countries half a world apart. So part of what this this is, this book is trying to reconcile with that I think is like really salient and and interesting, right, is the hyperpolarization and like isolation, right, like growing isolation over time. I think, you know, my impression is reacting to like that experience in the U.S., right, Mm -hmm. of that polarization. But that a natural conclusion of that could be that we further niche down government, right? Like that we we draw these smaller and smaller boundaries of governance and we change the meaning of of democracy to be still globalized, but also hyper local. And so it's like, it's, it's both ends of the extremes, right? It's a world order government, but it's a world order government where you and your closest 100,000 neighbors are the only people governed by the government that you are part of. Right. I mean, I do understand the concept of like, I have more in common with like a TikTok teen than I do like my next door neighbor. Yeah. Right. And that like, that person I might choose a similar government. I think the part that like breaks my brain is, and this is because we live in a nation state, you know, like based society. That's like, I, it's hard for me to both divorce that from the idea of place and also maintain it in, in some way, like it, it's figuring out like where that boundary is. And in this fiction, right. I don't, I don't quite know. Maybe that's the part that I don't have is I just haven't read the book. So I don't, yeah. I don't know how that breaks down and like where it is tied to place and when it's not. The, and, and so the, this is like, actually I think part of the philosophical like question of the book, right. Is like this proposes a world order where part of what's also fundamentally true about it is like that they, they had, there are very open borders, right. Borders mm-hmm. are, well, as long as the states that have that that govern the spaces want their borders to be open, they are very open. There are some states that that are, you know, posited in in the book that have very restrictive immigration policies. But those are for fewer and further between because the system fundamentally relies on like that open border right. system. And like I don't know. Have you? Are you of the millennial 
you know, persuasion of the let's all pool our money, buy a house in the middle of nowhere and talk to no one else other than, uh, you know, our 10 best friends. I have definitely been in that place before. <laughs> Shout out to several of you who are listening to the show right now that I used to talk about doing this, right. doing this with in college. Like, I just want to run off and, and live in a queer commune in the middle of nowhere with my 100,000 closest friends who definitely all agree with me. Right. right? <laughs> like, that's, I think, like some of where this is coming from. Right. Like right. this desire for like minded community. Right. And like, I think that it's a concept that's expressed by different people in different ways. There, There's a version of this, which is like a nostalgia for the past, right? A nostalgia for when we used to be closer to each other and we used to, yeah. you know, break down barriers in that way. And this essentially is saying is running the concept of globalization to its full thought and end here of like, and the way that we build more connection is by actually completely obliterating all of these things. And like, right. it's also worth saying that <laughs> in the book, they're like, yeah, that that doesn't really exist in the US, right? Like you're either a Democrat mm. or you're a Republican in the US. And that's still how the US is structured other than was, some small <laughs> enclaves. I was gonna say, I find it so difficult for that to exist in my brain because like, I don't know, say tomorrow, right, this fiction were to happen in, in, in real life, who are the 99,999 people that I would get paired up against? Mm-hmm. And like, even if government is, and and societal order is not tied to place, I have to be. Yeah. Because I still need to, at that point, if I am that closely tied, like I, I do operate within a governmental structure with the people in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That is a reality, mm-hmm. right? But if that becomes as important as the nation state, I am, I mean, I'm already thinking about moving for political reasons, but yeah. like I, that becomes a lot more, a lot more like active. Yeah. Right? At the very least, I've got to go move to downtown Tulsa. Right? Yeah. Like that's, uh, that's at the very least what comes to my mind in, in that world. Yeah. Because it is a political thriller, right? And because it doesn't like introduce a system to you and then take that system at face value, right? That's part of the narrative of like, are there, is there civil unrest happening here? Are there clashes? Are there clashes between states? Are there clashes between different governmental supporters within states, right? Like it is, it is also more, you know, like this sort of pseudo imperial like it's not imperial but it is thinking about things in almost like an imperial way of like my mm. government that i that is rep, that that is the government for this district right or this city or this neighborhood sentinel is half a world away right it is imperial in that way but information connects them all so it's like instantaneous there's not uh there's no like lag in time between communication or information sharing so it it doesn't the you know it, it does and it doesn't right some of the intrigue of the book is that like there are attacks on information there is um you know a big plot point in the book is there's an earthquake that knocks out all mm. communications for a certain amount of time and that creates chaos and and challenges and disruption right I also just, I won't make you read this quote because I, 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 I've heard you on the walls of text that are a little, a little goofy, uh, goofy, uh, nerdy. Um, but the, I, I really want I really like this book's sense of humor as well. Um, they, <laughs> they, you, they, sorry, I was just laughing at this. 
they uh, in the concept and and the discussions of immigration in the book, which all of this is like threaded into the narrative of this story, right? right? Like one of the other things that's so smart and interesting about this book is that it is a really, really intellectual take on political world order. And it is folded into a really brilliant, very compelling, easy to read fast-paced spy novel story mm. political thriller so um what is making me laugh though is this uh idea of um mander jerrying in the book <laughs> they say some journalists two decades ago dubbed the process of um you know opening the borders and governments pulling in like-minded people as mander jerrying although it is also <laughs> known as reverse osmosis because it results in greater concentrations of like-minded and on occasion racially or ethnically alike constituents matt so the thing you like just described was the thing that i was talking about yeah. right which is that like, like one of the reasons that we are moving back to dc right is uh i would call it more of political leaving something than political going to something but like this idea of like minds moving to similar places is yeah. like a concept that I'm already very familiar with as a person. Yeah. And I think like, again, the, one of the things that's really interesting and successful about this book is it's playing on things that are already true, right? right. It is building on things that we already do and things that people are interested in doing. Right. And I, I think like, it's very, very interesting to me that this book came out in 2016. And sure, it has always been true that people will move for like political safety or asylum right. or whatever. But like, I think that it's really interesting, like in my day to day life, right, where I'm talking to people who are making calculations of like, I need to move states so that I am safer, so that I have access to my health care, so that my loved ones have access to their health care, have access mm -hmm. to the legal procedures that they need to change their name or their gender or their physical body. Right. And that piece of it, like, I think in, in the same way that like uh, parable of the sower feels very prescient to me for very specific reasons, this book too, right. Is, is right. prescient in that way. One of the other things that I love about the micro democratic structure as it's presented in the book is this um, interplay between like, countries that we're familiar with being name dropped whether or not those countries are still their ent their their entities of themselves right. and also one of the other forms of government that's the most common are corporate governments so Philip Morris is mentioned as a corporate government Sony Mitsubishi Coca-Cola these are all corporations that that over time become governments of these individual city states. And lots of them are like, oh, yeah, it's like where the people who work at these companies live. But some people just live in those areas because right. they're safer, because they like the products, because they like the freebies or the bonuses. They are often talking about like what different governments give away. Right. Um, there's like, I, I can't remember what the company, oh, the Nestle. It, Nestle is one of the corporate governments. If you live in a Nestle Sentinel, they like give away baby formula, that kind of stuff. Like, and, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, and it's that's like, like really topical too, just for like yeah. the real world, the yes. real fucking world. Yes, exactly. And like it plays on this like historical idea that is much less common, but still does happen, right? Of a company town, right? Right. Places where whole communities are oriented around the fact that the majority of the workforce works for one company, right? Like 
it's also really like an effective piece of storytelling for me, a person who like is really interested in the ways that private companies run our current theoretic or, or are engaged in the oligarchic right. project of right. <laughs> influencing U.S. government and policy. Right. And like it feels really satisfying that a speculative fiction of a future world would acknowledge that like a corporation might become a government. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a news story and I'm not going to remember the headline exactly, but it was like the, the big three tech companies have already made enough money to pay all their fines in the first three days of 2024. Yeah. And it is always a thing that really hammers home to me that like existing governments are basically powerless. Um, yeah. I mean, they hold power over the, their people, but they don't hold power over every structure within them. It does not su surprise me that in an imagined future, someone would imagine more oligarchy. Yeah. And it, it's not even presented as like, I think it's not even presented as oligarchy. It is like this, just acknowledgement that those things aren't going to go away. Oh, right. And yeah. other people actually have more freedom now because they get to choose not to be involved. Right. Right. And I, I think that that's really interesting. Well, and I also think that like, uh, especially if you're coming from the world we're in now, like at least for a long period of time, people are always going to like, I don't know, simp for their favorite capitalist, you yeah. know, <laughs> like I, I, I can, if I were writing this book and was picking the companies, you know, that, that had government, like there's an Apple government. Yeah. Like 1 million yeah. percent that is happening. <laughs> and there is a competitive meta government or something yeah. that people are also on the side of. I'm just like picking the threads debate right now. Amazon, like, whatever. Yeah. 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 But like, and then people among them would be mad at each other because mm -hmm. it, it would just be an extension of the existing sort of like identities that people already have. Like that would exist as a subset of this world. Yeah. And and like that does kind of happen, right? There is conflict. And I, I again, I this is the first book in the series and and there are two other books. The second book talks a lot about the like the complications of microdemocracy at the edge of information or in places where there's a less reliable connection to information. Mm. Um in places oh, man, that so are more um, where population is more spread out. So 100,000 people are much farther apart um, versus, uh, you know, like in these, the one of the states that be it, one of the sentinel state areas that becomes known as Ja Bo Di Ta Bek Ban, which is Jakarta, like the, <laughs> the area that we know as Jakarta, but it's like just a smashing together of like the Indonesia, like all of the in beginnings right and like there there are hundreds of sentinels because there's huge volumes of people in a very small area so there's this quote in the book in half an hour ken can walk through upscale enclaves where intellectual rich have voted for tranquility and gardens keeping out anyone who doesn't belong with garden force no trespassing laws squalid sentinels where the whole hundred thousand seem to be packed on top of each other sustained by drugs and cigarettes and probably subsidizing some faraway co-constituents through cheap labor neo-communist areas with massive canteens and service economies governments where pork is illegal where beef is illegal where any meat is illegal along with advertisements soda and material possessions 
Of the 2,207 registered governments, nearly 150 hold at least one sentinel in the northwest tip of Java. And so it's trying to give like scale for how many people live there. Right. Right. And so in the second novel, it's try- it, the first novel does a lot of like tackling the problems of information in these very densely populated areas. The second novel approaches a lot of the challenges of information and this city state tension in outer lying areas or in areas, countries that have not bought into the micro democratic system. Right. And so this is where the like the complications of micro democracy come into play. That Jakarta quote is also contextualized in the understanding of like this character is constantly moving between governments. And so like to us, it would be like crossing the border between Mexico and the U.S. every five minutes. Right. Like it is a short distance of time. And this is like a it becomes a fun and interesting feature of the novel because it like plays into like the spy chase scenes that happen. And you get characters who are like making calculations of like looking up what governments have extradition treaties with the government that they're running from, right? Like these like very interesting dynamics of I have to stop and check before I cross this border. Do I have a gun on me? Are guns allowed in this territory? How risky is it? How intense is their security? What are their approaches? And like these calculations are happening rapidly within the context of the novel. And it's just like a a cool little um, it adds a lot of flavor to the text of like the the drama of the chase scene mm. um, in a way that I really like. One of the other problems that the the novel talks about is like government collab- collaboration, population distribution, novelty governments. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> OK, <laughs> please do read this. So the novelty governments part comes up a number of times, but I would love it if you'll read this quote from. <laughs> That's under the novelty government's note section in the notes. But in this moment in the novel, what has happened is, as I mentioned, there's been an earthquake. And so this is sort of this like throwaway, <laughs> throwaway little paragraph about <laughs> emergency response services during the earthquake. Sony Mitsubishi teams are all over the place and seem to know their stuff. Hello Kitty, not so much. She's talking not about the corporate conglomerate that includes Sanrio, but about Chao Kawai, a single sentinel government specializing in fanfic and cute characters. Economically, they do pretty well, but apparently they haven't been investing much of their revenue in disaster preparedness. So this is one of the other things that's like this funny. It, it, it's funny in this context, but it's also actually like kind of sad and stressful, right? Right. The idea is like there has been this massive earthquake in Tokyo and there there are people who really need emergency services, but their government didn't invest in those things because the people who created that government like weren't interested in that. Right. So this idea, yeah, you can create a government as long as a hundred thousand, you can get a hundred thousand people to vote for you. You can run your own government. Um, maybe seems like, a, a an easy concept, but it's like this, mm-hmm. there are real consequences uh, it, the the novel doesn't hesitate to point out that there are real consequences when these, you know, kind of interact like smaller micro governments cannot 
<laughs> when these smaller micro governments, when micro governments can't fulfill the things that they need to do to provide municipal services or to provide like essential things to the people in their city states. Yeah. It's interesting. You have this section just quote about um, public transport mm, in, in subways. Mm-hmm. And it's like something I was thinking about. I was thinking generally like in this world, how, social services and also just like general services work. Yeah. I am not a person who could, could write speculative fiction. Cause I would be like, how would that work? And then I'd sit here and be like, I'll fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, that's that government collaboration part, right? Like this is, this quote is talking about um, in New York city, how does the subway run in New York city? Because it crosses through so many sentinels on a regular basis. And essentially this book says like, well, people don't, the Sentinels where the government doesn't pay in for the tax, then the subway doesn't stop there, but it does run through there, right? And this is this part of like the level of, of coordination, the level of, I mean, the level of information that's required for this kind of thing to be successful is only possible because of information because right. of this level of connection and you know this extrapolation of the internet. So I want to pivot and talk about information and this is this is often the, the the information piece of it is really the thing that I am almost always thinking about right. especially as we start to have conversations about generative AI especially as we have you know when I have conversations with various people in my life from various different approaches of like how much time do we spend on our devices? How much time do we spend consuming content? Like, how do we think about our lives and ourselves filtered through the experience of having parasocial relationships with any number of people? Topics we've right. talked about on this show, right? <laughs> but it is information is everywhere. It is it is literally everywhere in this world. It is tied to both physical and virtual space. The idea is that it is projected. They they don't ever say if like everybody wears glasses or if there's I think they actually no, I'm saying I'm rethinking that. I don't remember. They don't really get into the technicalities of They're how it works. They're not getting into like works, hardware right? it's and very, like how this is functioning. Yeah, it's like this is happening. <laughs> right. Everybody has access to it. And it's basically like if the UN was like, we have made, we've made the internet free for everybody, everywhere, right. then what would happen, right? And, and and in this case, the idea is that it's not the UN, it's information. It becomes an right. independent entity. Information is not a government, but it has representation all over the world. There are information offices everywhere. And the information that's possible for you to receive is also everywhere, Walking down the street, you are seeing both virtual and physical ads. So I know that this is a big block of text, but this is the block of text. This is the quote early on in the book that explains, um, I think, best how these different um, how information is different from just like the cell phone that you and I use. This is first, though, she calls up her information. Like most people, Mishima has a couple of favorite feeds, sources that she's found to be fast and reliable, though she's probably pickier and a better judge of reliable than most people. She has her screen set up to automatically calculate and source the most popular feeds globally and locally, so that at any given moment she knows what people, uh, what most people are learning. She includes the major news compilers, uh, regardless of how many people are paying attention to them, 
broken down to the continent level and sometimes further. Besides that, her algorithm adds in a couple of random streams that flick between various compilers, opinionators, and virtual plazas without regard for size or relevance. It's a tactic that reminds her every time she uses it of the panels from Watchmen, where Ozymandias watches multiple TVs tuned to different channels to reach a composite view of society and make predictions, both financial and political. Not for the first time, Mishima wishes her world as few, had as few channels as his. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny. Yeah. It, it, and like, it, it's this idea of like information overwhelm, but that right. the volume of information is massive. And not, it, I think it's worth saying that like Mishima is also presented as a character who's like an assassin, who is like a high level operative. She's yeah. taking in a lot more information than say the average person. But that kind of algorithmic compilation of what kind of news you want to access is something that is possible, right? And and the difference here is that it's expressing that, like, she has more agency, right, in setting that algorithm herself and in influencing what it is she sees. And, like, this comes up over and over again in the, in the book that, like, people have in the same way now, right, that, like, People talk about like, oh, you're talking to an echo chamber. You're only seeing the things that your algorithm knows that you want to see. Right. This implies like a little bit more choice and a little bit more agency. And like you right. are able to tell the algorithm what you want to see. And that is what it gives you. But it feels it feels easy to see this as the future that we're walking toward. You know? Yeah, it's funny. I agree. And also every time I um, am introduced to one of these like internet-based like speculative futures they always imagine things as like so much easier than they are like this like i'm reading this paragraph and i'm like this idea that you could like have feeds of <laughs> quote-unquote information which i'm gonna assume are just like people outputting things onto an internet of some sort and you could get them all in the same place with a simple device that like mm -hmm. you knew how to navigate that is people have way too much desired for their thing to be the thing you care about. Yeah. For like those to be all in one spot. Right. We're currently reorganizing social media to some extent around federated like tool sets, like AT protocol or um, activity pub. I almost forgot activity pub and I feel like I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Um, but like, we're not there. Like we're not even close to there because people still care way. And I can say people, I'm talking about corporations care a yeah. lot about proprietary um, solutions to information problems and other problems generally. But I, I read that and that's the part that is the fiction to me. Yeah. The part that's the fiction to me is like how, how well it works and how seamless it is. If you can get it to that state, right? The horrors or, you know, the uh, whatever pleasures we'll call it, right, mm -hmm. of, of that society absolutely, I think, um, could look like this. And I'm also like, I think we're a little too selfish and, and dumb to, to, to make things work out as it, at this exact way, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's not wrong. I think that like some of what I see um, in the... <laughs> In the story is that there's actually not a lot in the story about like how it all happened, right? Like I said, there's mm -hmm. not a lot of background. It's just that this is all there now. 
I think that trying to tell the story of like how information came to be is impossible because it is the part that is fiction because of all right. of the things that you said, right? Like, yeah. like it would be a an arduous process. And like for what it's worth, a lot of like what the book is about is all of the different ways that people more than the opinions that people have about micro democracy, which the book is centered around like an election. Right. So of course it is about micro democracy is about people's opinions about information as well as micro democracy, because information has not always existed and information is a neutral entity, but it is a separate entity from your government. Right. And so there's like all, there's all of this complex, like, There are attacks on information. There are interruptions in information, right? The voting, the micro democratic system, you know, without spoiling too much, right? Like voting happens through information, right? Right. And so if information is disrupted, then what happens to the vote? What happens to the election? How does that influence? Like if information is down, world government, like in one part of the world, Everybody can talk to everybody else except for this one part of the world. And so, um, I don't know. It's just really fascinating. I think the other idea is what the, what the idea is about like your personal information, right? Mm. There is the idea that you have a public profile that is like displayed next. You can have a public profile that is like displayed next to your face basically while other people see you. So you'd be walking down the street and someone can see just like your name, information, whatever, If you wanted to show that to people, you could also have it like private. It is like, you know, it's everywhere. He uh, quote, he takes the silicone mug to the gate. It's animated maps showing the recycling bin closest to his current location, auto updating as he moves. Right. So it's like from everything as simple as where can I throw this coffee cup away Mm -hmm. to the most complicated questions of moving across the moving across the world of information happening from the other side of the world like of all of these things it's also worth noting that like they basically envision a system where like lang- these it, there are translators so your everything is automatically translated we're all living in doctor who <laughs> under the spell of the tardis we can all understand each other perfectly and that is also an essential part of the system right like If you are organizing the world based on like like minded people living close to like minded people and the fact that those like minded people might not be from the same country, those like minded people then do not speak the same language. And so it's not envisioning a world where everyone has become multilingual or there's a universal language, but instead a like fictional translator function. Hmm. And there are other like mods and like cyberpunk kind of mods that are talked about like antenna or radar attachments or like things to heighten your senses um, and other like small body modifications that I think are like just kind of run in the mill sci-fi. They're not, they're not like the most interesting, like they're not information. They're not this like language translator chip, Um, but they are interesting in the context of the novel. And I like, I think my thing is like, I don't know that I would want a universal trans language translator. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, having been in the room when Jonathan's like, they were talking shit about us. I'm, I'm like, 
cool. Oh my god. Yeah, I still think about the uh, delightful experience that I had when we flew when we I went to Rome earlier, uh, not earlier this year. Last year, I went to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, I went to Rome and uh, flew um, on Lufthansa, you know, the German airline on the way there. And my partner speaks German, is fluent in German. And um, so when we were on the plane, the very nice flight attendant started out the conversation in German. Obviously, she also speaks English. And because Mac responded in German, then turned to me and spoke to me in German. And I was just like, I may I have a bottle of water, please? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, because I like truly um, did not know what was happening. <laughs> so maybe it would have come in handy, I guess. But right. um, I think that like, there is also something to me about like the flattening of this. I think one thing that's exciting about the way that this this novel presents a future of globalization is that it, it doesn't flatten out like the unique details. There's not a universal language. Instead, there's a universal language right. translator. But like I do feel curious about does a universal language translator mean then that people aren't learning each other's languages and like how does that shape your relationship to understanding because oh, like man. there's 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 a million things about like translators and like can the translator accurately translate AC, concepts i have i have <laughs> information for you oh boy um, there's this game um i'm by the way i texted ac an intrusive thought recently and said uh intrusive thought for you can't put it down it's a segment within the show can't let it go about video games um so this <laughs> is your can't put it down moment when we finally uh get uh cool enough to have a patreon or whatever it'll be sure. our subscriber only episodes <laughs> maybe then um there's this game called chance of sonar um that came out last year one of the things i did while i was not quite bedridden um over the holidays was play chance of sonar and it is a game about translation. Ooh. You are dropped into a world where you see symbols, you don't know what they mean, and you are required to um, figure out this language so that you can move to the next area. Oh, kind of right? like Tunic. Uh, very similar, yes, but um, not as hard to translate. Uh, <laughs> tunic is so hard. And also, it's required for the game, whereas Tunic, you're not required to do the Got language it. translation. Got um, it. I mean, you show up and there's like a people and you kind of see the things that they value. And that tells you, for example, what that language might be trying to say with that symbol. But that's going to be different. The words that the next society that you see is going to focus on is going to be based on the things that that society values. Right. And so you end up learning five languages in this game. But the, the thing that was really cool to me was how those languages were shaped by the things that the societies that the created them valued, right? Like the fourth uh, society that you run into is a is one built around scientific discovery, right? So they have words for like certain metals, mm. which is something you've never seen in any of the other languages. There's a society of, I don't want to like spoil one of the words, but they're um, it's a very violent society. Mm. And that language is going to be very different than the society that's more religious or the society that's more focused on um, aesthetics and art, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's the ways that those societies talk to each other is is interesting too. Anyway, that when you're talking about translators and the idea of something being lost in translation, um, it's about what, to me, the people that uh, speak that language natively 
mean by things. And mm-hmm. I also now am like, like, okay, but the way that we live our lives at the moment is very language is tied to place. What does that have to do in a world where like nothing else is really tied to place anymore? I mean, uh, the language family is famously Indo-European, right? Like, right. like famously tied to place language. Right. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's like there. What does it mean if you I think there's a there's a part that I I put into the notes uh, of the book where they talk about like Qatar uh, and the country of Qatar and like the Qatar is not part of the micro democracy um, and that like foreign nationals who live in Qatar like vote in their home sentinel. So they don't vote in the sentinel that they live in. They vote in their home sentinel because Qatar doesn't like consider them to be citizens or whatever or Mm. sentinel members. So like, it's also not necessarily where you live (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Anyway, what was I saying? What was I saying? I, I think about if it's not fully participating, how does that influence the people who move there or who migrate there or like who are part of a different um, culture and like what cultural exchange is created and lost through that you know, trans- transitory um, structure? So the majority of the book takes place in the Eastern Hemisphere. There are mentions of the United States um, uh, and, and you know, South America. I guess they go to Cartagena. They, they go to South okay. America. It, it, it's primarily just that it doesn't taste pl- take place in North America, right? It really centers characters and individuals who are primarily from, like, East Asian backgrounds, right. um, primarily um, Japanese and Korean um, backgrounds. And and so it it's, it's a really cool... Also, because it takes this like focus off of the Western hemisphere and the and the focus on the West and how the West would handle these things, right? It is really centered on these um, non-Western countries, countries, nation states, city states. I don't know what the word sentinels, yeah, <laughs> non-Western sentinels, and like the ways that they deal with disaster and disruption. Um, and it, and it's, and it's different. It's, it's very, very interesting. Um, I can't, I actually am realizing that mostly I'm just talking to distract myself from talking about translation and linguistics because I would get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> you got to play chance of Sonar. That game, um, you're getting a mini review of this game, uh, which is that <laughs> the ending I felt a little, I, I said to friends that it felt a little bit like the video game equivalent of a coexist sticker. Oh. Um, and I, there's nothing bad about that. It's just not a meaningful message. Yeah. That's like 10 seconds in a game that is nine hours long and the other nine hours was incredible. Right? Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's say there's a world where something like information exists. Like, are you, are you into that? Are, do you want that? Like, is that, is that like, I think there's a real question that the that the series does ask, like, is is that amount of information a responsible thing for people to consume? You know, so I feel like my 20s were about me getting comfortable with the fact that I um, that like technology could be bad. Mm. I mean, you know me. I'm like I'm the guy, the early adopter of everything. I have had a face computer before. Yeah, I was like, listener, Matt's about to talk about when he had Google Glass. <laughs> it's in my closet. I still have it. it just They don't work anymore because that's what happens to technology. I am 
a much bigger skeptic now than when I got Google Glass. Yeah. I still consider myself to be an early adopter. Yeah. The thing that makes me hesitant for this stuff is, um, sorry to bring up Hank Green again. I know he's also not the only person talking about this. Um, Is uh, Hank has talked about like the speed of information, right? And, and how we are not ready to be communicating as fast as we already are. Yeah. So this idea of information at, like we joke about information being at the speed of thought. It's not right now, but this idea that like, it inches closer and closer to that. Yeah. Um, is a little terrifying to me. Did you listen to Limetown? No. The podcast Limetown? I don't know that I recommend it uh, okay. anymore, but um, back in the day, it was this, it's this like fiction, uh, a speculative fiction podcast about a bunch of things, but mostly this like scientific city that kind of got erased off the face of the planet and everyone in it disappeared. Um, and it's kind of like a pretend a uh, serial type show, but yeah, then it's a welcome it's, to Night Vale vibe. Yeah. But you find out the things they were working on there were about mm. like telepathy, essentially. Mm. Um, that's oversimplifying, but that's basically sure. what it was. But some of the things it's talking about, especially in its second season, which I very much don't recommend, but some of the things that I found interesting about it were the ways that that kind of processing and sharing of information that quickly loses its ability to go through like really natural filters that make life with other people more difficult to live. Yeah. Right. Um, there's this whole story and I'm just fully going to spoil this episode, but, um, (laughs) whole story in their second season about like people living on this, uh, oil barge essentially. Mm. And there being a whole group of children there and, um, them having these rumors of this essentially monster that scared Mm. each other. Right. Not, or whatnot that turned into something more real in their heads than it was in reality and mm. actually turned into a disaster. Mm. So to answer the question more directly, when I think about the things that scare me about this, it's not the, Oh, there's a chip in my head thing, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't, whatever I don't know. Yeah. You know. It's what does it do to my relationships to other people to be able to have information accessed that quickly? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going through all of the hits right now. But when I think, when I also think about that access, that quick access of information, I think of like um, telepathy in, uh, in the X-Men Hellfire Gala events. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's how they vote for their leaders, their X-Men every yeah. year right now is through telepathic votes. Um, they form entire campaigns in 30 seconds just through sharing emotions with each other, mm-hmm. right? And it's an idealistic, very comic book way of looking at it. And so I definitely, even when you're talking about like uh, participating in democracy, right? Yeah. This idea that like that speed of information enables those kinds of things, that is really fucking rad, frankly, yeah. right? Like I realize it's kind of passe to be idealistic about government at the moment but like the the idea that i could participate in in my community um with very little effort Mm -hmm. right is really cool yeah Uh, now that said one thing that we didn't talk about was you talked about how you talked about rural areas and you talked about Mm -hmm. places getting cut off but i think i personally think about a lot is rural internet access mm-hmm. and how we've basically abandoned rural America. Right. I don't know about anything outside of this country in terms of internet access. I'm sure yeah. it's just as bad because I don't know. Capitalism exists everywhere or yeah. mostly <laughs> everywhere, but the, 
in in a world like this, I would be really like I'm already really concerned for people that are cut off from information. But yeah. like in a world where information capital I exists, mm-hmm. I'm extremely concerned for those people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think the the like I said, the second book really touches on those themes. Um, and I think that it's something that also isn't not present here. There are moments where all of the characters seek out specific like quiet to be able to do certain things or to feel like they're not being watched or surveilled, right? There there is something it's it's not portrayed as quite sinister, right? But there is also like a certain awareness that happens for all of these characters about how much information they are taking in what is available to them and then specifically for them like what happens when it goes away right Right. like a lot of um without it's not too far into the book i i won't i won't spoil the like main political thriller aspect of it because i do think it's it's worth reading and and fun to read Uh, it has a really good payoff but like the earthquake that happens relatively early on in the book part of the problem is like People use their information to pay for everything, right? So, I mean, this is, and this is like a problem that would already exist today, right? I have, I think maybe $5 in cash in my home, right? And like, I don't carry, like most people, I don't carry cash. And the, what happens? The internet goes down tomorrow. I, how am I paying for goods and services? How am I paying for groceries or whatever, right? The book, you know, talks about like, how do without the internet, or without the information, in this moment of disaster, people are trying to get food, they are trying to get somewhere safe, somewhere warm. And so like, is it looting? You know, is it if you write down your information, if you write down your like personal identification number, And you promise that you will pay when information comes back up. But then there's like this whole there are a number of exchanges with people where they're like, well, I don't know when it's coming back up. So I'm not doing that Mm -hmm. because I I don't take you at your your word that information will come back, that I will get paid. Right. And so there is also this um, through line in the novel about like the distrust that can be created when our systems are disrupted and then like the different reactions that people have. I think one thing that I love about this book is the way that it allows um, a lot of individuals to come into the story with different perspectives. There's not a single truth being presented in the book as like the one right thing. Although I will say the, the one thing that is clearly portrayed as the bad guy every time is like corruption, right? Mm. Like corruption, exploitation, those are the things that the, the, that should be rooted out um, or, or taken, removed from the system, right? Consolidation of power unnecessary by cheating, by stealing, right? Not consolidation of power by, by gaining ground. And so the characters, you know, I haven't even said this to this point, the characters are right. Like this, this spy Mishima, Ken, who is a pollster for a campaigner. Sorry. He's not a pollster. He's a campaigner for policy first. So he's, he's an organizer, like a, a, he goes around talking to people about the government that he works for to try to get Mm. them to vote for it. Right. You know, a spy for like, like a straight up spy, like somebody who is, she's not really into it. She's not like a, an advanced spy. She's like somebody that, 
you know, a political party member is paying off to give, give, right. you know, pass along information that she learns about liberty, about one of the governments, right? So, like, all of these people come to the story from different perspectives. And while they don't have explicit as explicit of conversations like you and I are having about, like, what does that mean for our world, right? They are talking about, you know, information goes down. They do talk about, like, what would you do? What do you think? What What is happening beyond the like actual just text of the plot of the story. And I think that that's really cool. All of that to say that I think that I I don't know how to feel about the idea of a world where this amount of information is available. Because I think one of the other things that I also like about the novel is it doesn't shy away from saying that like this is a future where you are heavily adver- advertised to constantly every day in every right. single way. And like the thing that is currently making me just like frustrated every time I try to engage in social media right now is just the number of ads that I am seeing. Specifically, I'm thinking about TikTok and talking about TikTok. Uh, you know, the introduction of the the shopping tab, the TikTok shop, every every two of every four videos I see, two of every three videos I see some nights are like eligible for commission are people trying to sell me something. And so, right. you know, it's exhausting, right? You know, to only be seen for the capital one can provide. Yeah. So I like that the the book doesn't shy away from like, Ads are a very big part of this, right? right. It's not that that uh, capitalism or the consequences of of capitalism have gone away, right? All of those things still exist, right? Um, there are more opportunities for a reprieve, but it's not it's not you know an idealistic future where everything like right. is perfect. Yeah. Um, so, an update on on Matt's TikTok feed. Ooh. Um, I still don't have TikTok shop. I have not seen a single TikTok shop. I am just like actually so deeply jealous of you. <laughs> People complain about it all the time. I'm like, man, I'm living a year ago. That's I don't know. I don't know what's going on on your TikTok feed. You're so I've seen, blessed. I've seen the feed that has like five things at the top. I'm like, I'm yeah. over and following for you. I don't know what's up with your app. Truly, you're God's favorite, I guess, is what I'm learning. <laughs> I update my apps. I told you I'm still an early adopter. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just bought uh, an Apple Watch Ultra. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. The reason I think about this book so much is both the the world that I work in, where I think about politics and world order all of the time, something that I used to say to myself a lot, right? Which is um, when I, I really am deeply invested in the, not to get like really earnest for a moment, but to get really earnest for a moment. I am just like deeply invested in the honestly very challenging for me work of imagining a better world, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I really deeply believe that a better world is possible and that I, I don't have the, like me personally, I don't know how, but I know that like, I believe in our ability to work together to get towards a better future. And I really, I, the way that I used to express this was when I envision a better world, my version of a better world is a world where communities are organized by their um, like community garden rather than their police precinct. Um, mm-hmm. 
And that is like that kind of micro level that this book is reflecting as a possible future, right? That right. your neighborhood is your you the people that you think about the most and therefore is who you are governed alongside. And um, I mean, that's that's generally true now, right? Like my city council person does represent me and my neighbors, but like the the empowerment of like the potential to have more of a direct say in right. your day to day experiences of governance is is interesting and appealing to me, but I actually don't know that I would like it anymore, that mm -hmm. I like the current system, right? <laughs> yeah. You you said that about imagining a better world. I'm just curious, me and you, what's your relationship to doomerism? What what do you mean by doomerism? Just just this the uh the approach that I think I see a lot more often every day that things will never get better. And I don't know that these folks that I'm thinking of are necessarily saying we shouldn't try. Yeah. Right? But I ask because I clash with it, but also agree with a lot of the things that some of these people say. Sure. Right. And, but then I see things like that and I'm like, no, but like, like if, if we don't have hope for a better future, then there's nothing worth doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that my thing is that I really firmly believe that a better world is possible. I don't agree that we should, that, that it's all, that it's not possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't think it will be easy or that it's like coming tomorrow. But I think that like my other thing is that, okay, worst case scenario, I'm wrong. It never gets right. better. Then all we have is each other. And the right. things that I would do to orient myself towards a better world are the things that I do would do to orient myself towards caring for the people who are right. around me, who are all that I have in, in the system that I'm suffering under. So like, I think for me, it, it doesn't change whether or not I'm right that we can get to a better world, like whether or not that's right. true, it doesn't change like the level of care that I want to have for my community and like the level of care that I want other people to have for each other. Right. And so like, I'm, I'm still going to use my energy to, to right. do that work. And like to, to, cause like, I think like the answer is bad. Depends on the day. Right. Depends on how many people have annoyed me. Yeah. Everything's ending. The, yes. The, the, the world is, is ending. But I think like the thing that's the hardest is that, it can be really, really easy to feel like we've arrived at a place at which there is no going back, right? Like we can't turn back time. And that's right. true. But you're only ever doing the same thing over and over again until the point at which you stop doing the same thing over and over again and you do something different, right? Right. Like there is always an opportunity. There, it, There is – in the course of human history, one thing has been true and that is – that things will change and that we get to be part of that change. How they change. Yeah. How they change is like a big question. Yeah. Is it baby? I, I think it's a healthy way to look at it. I, <laughs> I think I see these, um, conversations be it about, um, you know, the deaths of thousands of Palestinians. Yeah. Um, or the murder, I will say of thousands of Palestinians, um, or be it climate change. Um, and I, uh, I don't know how to feel, but I see other people being really confidently uh, sad is like too small of a word, 
right? Yeah. Very, just like very confidently convinced that nothing will ever be better again. Yeah. And I get it. I, I'm not trying to like judge people for having those feelings at all. But the thing that like, the thing that makes me feel is like, I both feel helpless and like I can't do anything but do what I can to make some kind of change. Like, yeah. Like that feels like the only option to me. Right. Yeah. Even if all that that is, is like throw $50 at buying e-sims for Palestinians or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like if that's what I can do that day, then that's what I can do that day. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think about it a lot because talking about being bombarded with information every day, I'm constantly bombarded by like, Hey, earth, it doesn't like us. And it is kind of mad that we fucked it up. <laughs> and also, um, Hey, we're like, people are still being murdered in Palestine every day. Yeah. And like, I, I both want to be reminded of those things. And also I'm like, what, what is my responsibility? I don't mean generally, I mean like in the five minutes in which I'm seeing these things on the internet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm thinking of, of two like quotes and, and thought patterns that, are have been very important to me over the years and i think like one is the hope is a discipline right like right hope is a discipline we look at the world around us and we choose hope like we choose to it is an active choice because it would be very it is very easy not it would be it is it's very easy to be demoralized by those things happening around us i think the other one that i'm thinking of is um something that i shared actually early on in in the um in the genocide in gaza uh, it's uh do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief you are not obligated to complete the work but neither are you free to abandon it yeah that has helped me a lot. Yeah. Well. And it's this concept of like, I mean, what I was saying a moment ago, right? All we have is each other. And mm-hmm. if all that we have is each other, then we are all in, we can all be in the work together and none of us holds it alone. Right. We can't set it down. We can't walk away from it, but we can be part of it. We are part of it. Right. And so I, I don't know. I think, you're right. We're we're not meant to hold this much grief as individual people is another part of it too. And I think I think a lot about that. Um yeah. I don't know. One day we'll do our collective grief episode and <laughs> yeah, we will yeah. uh, end up crying know, like, about these exact things. Yeah. I, I, like I, I at this point I like also don't even know like what does it mean to do a collective grief episode when we're <laughs> sitting in our homes right exactly right and there like, is I, it's the, it's the one devastation down the road yeah. because it's like it's easier to talk about um, it's easier to talk about Barbie or a, a speculative future than it is to um, admit that it sucks to be me, right? Even yeah. when I'm sitting in my house that I own, right? Uh, and, you know, eating food that I had brought to me, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's hard It's hard to have those feelings. So I, I, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. This has been, I mean, a little detour. But I, <laughs> I, think, I think you can see how, maybe, how when we got to here, 
when I am thinking about these kinds of things, when I'm when I'm talking with people about a potential world or a future world, or when I'm just talking to people about like the impact of consuming things on social media of like my job essentially being to put content in front of people to share information, right? Like right. that is a lot of what I do on a, on a daily basis. I think about how will people receive this? What will they say? What will they think? What will they do? And I really like my job, but there are also a lot of downsides to social media. There are a lot of downsides to the amount of information that people can access. And also, we are better equipped to have bigger, more difficult conversations. And honestly, for the world to be more interesting because it is more connected than we ever have been. You know, the world is a better place for the exchange of information and the exchange of cultural concepts and the exchange of like shared experiences between people from worlds away. I mean, I, I believe that. I, I don't, I know that, that some people don't and that's okay. Like, but I, I truly believe that. Yeah. I think I had to think about it because I don't know what I think. I think um, that gets that sentiment, I will say, and this is not you saying this, gets used by some people that I um, honestly don't trust. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? For um, sure. And to, to say things about, quote, unquote, intellectual diversity um, as compared to actual diversity. Right? Um, but I also, like, there's a nugget in there that feels right to me that, like, it is good – um, it is good that I know what is going on, you know, on the literal opposite side of the globe. Um, it, it's good that I have that perspective, even in the small ways that I do that, yeah. that feels right to me. Yeah. I think that there, there is too, like there, there, the nugget that lives in there for me too, is like the information and access to information, access to accurate information is the cornerstone of destabilizing empire, right? Is the is the fundamental way that we succeed at undoing the long-term project of capitalism, right? Is the exchange of ideas. And, and I think it's also hard to say, like, the thing that gave me pause when I say I believe that the exchange of culture, like, I believe that cultural exchange is fundamentally good is, like, and also the cultural exchange that we experience is fundamentally founded on legacy and history of empire, destruction mm -hmm. and genocide that is bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, to go like to, to kind of start to bring us back to the book here, one of the things that I think that I like about this book and the way that it speculates a future is that. You know, it doesn't create a fake Coca-Cola. It is, for me, an honest assessment of a possible future because of the ways that it acknowledges, like, capitalism, corporatism, and the additional, like, pieces of destruction and manipulation, right? Because fundamentally, there, there is a story about manipulation, exploitation, cheating, you know, all of disruption, all of these things. I don't know. Revolution is what we've got. <laughs> Let's I, fucking go. <laughs> quick, quick question about the book. Yeah. Do they get into disinfo and misinfo? Oh yes. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. I yeah. It. it was, it was mentioned a little bit in the, um, 
in uh, the quote about what information is that we read when Mishima says uh, sources that she's found to be fast and reliable, although she's probably both a picker and better judge of reliable than most people. Right. So there is actually like a whole undercurrent of misinformation and disinformation. And that becomes a very big plot point. The way that misinformation and disinformation becomes a key part of this story feels really true and especially prescient for when it was published, you know, in 2016. Mm. You know, again, it centers around an election, so you can draw your own conclusions about what kind of misinformation and disinformation stories come up. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it is a big part of it, right? And and it so it feels relatable to me in that way unfortunately (laughs) yeah that that bothers me in real life every day yeah well i mean i just Matt, this this book is one that i think the first time i read it i didn't expect it to be it's not like the great american novel it's not right you know i think that it's extremely good writing but it's not like you know proust or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it is it's a it's a cyberpunk spy novel you know political thriller whatever but it has just these deep ideas and deep thoughts about the world that i find to be compelling that i'm reminded of often when i'm discussing you know having a philosophical conversation with friends and i just like i think that it's worth reading I hope that you read it, but if you don't, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, you know? I did. Um, I don't know that I'll read it right away. I want to start the Murderbot stuff because I've heard good things. I just want to call out the first book is called Infomocracy. Mm -hmm. Second book is called Null States. And the last one is State Tectonics. This is the Sentinel Cycle. Yes. People are looking for them. I did not. I looked out and apparently they came out three years in a row. Yes. Which is wild. Yeah. Um, super cool for the people that were reading the mess that came out. Yeah. Yes. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that is Infomocracy. AC, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet at acfachi.com. Wow. Great website. I've been to that website. It's pretty cool. Whoa. Uh, you can find me at matthorton.live. I'm working on one of my first videos of the year. So nice. that'll be up there and on YouTube and... The links are all there. You know where they are. Yeah. You can find our show at can'tletitgo.gay. And you can find us on Instagram, threads, and TikTok at can'tletitgo.gay. Um, thank you to The Worst Garbage for having us. We love y'all. Yeah. Uh, you can find <laughs> The Worst Garbage and all the shows on the network at theworstgarbage.online. Heads up, I've been catching up on my shame backlog of Frog of the Week. <laughs> it is so good. I love so Frog good. of the Week. If you've never listened to Frog of the Week, I recommend the Greenhouse Frog episode. It's incredible. I, um, the, my journal theme for my stickers on the outside of my journal this year is frogs. And so They're really cute. Um, I'm very excited to keep growing my frog knowledge so that I can become known as a frog facts person instead of a <laughs> bird facts person. Because um, apparently somehow that's a reputation I've built for myself. <laughs> Um, you should join us, like AC said earlier, in the Can't Let It Go channel on the TWG Discord. Yeah. That link is on both the network website and our show website. Um, shout out to Scout for making our art for us. Amazing. Um, she does not have any commissions open, 
because I bought one of them. Ooh. <laughs> so we're going to find out when, when she finishes her commission, you'll get to see that. Um, shout out to Pragmatism on Twitter, my friend Ethan, for our music. And next time, we have a guest that I am thrilled about, and I'm going to tell you nothing else. We're so excited. <laughs> I'm just absolutely thrilled that this worked out. It's a goal, but I'll just say this. It's a goal of mine this year more generally, just to like email or post at We're people cold calling people in 2024, baby. <laughs> that I want to talk to. And hey, the first time I tried, it worked out. So hey. <laughs> uh, anyway, next episode, you will get to figure out who that is. And we'll talk to you then. Yeah. Talk to you next time. WG, the worst garbage, the online.